0: Pregnancy is an exciting time full of hope and wonder and even trepidation. The addition of a child changes a person's life forever and for victims of fetal abduction in the United States their lives were brutally changed in a way they could never have imagined. In this series we will explore cases of fetal abduction in America from the highly publicized cases to the little known and every case in between. Join me, your host, Erica Kelly, for Fetal Abduction, a true crime podcast. It's a new podcast where we take a closer look at this rare yet heinous crime. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Fetal Abduction Pod and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Globin is a monthly subscription of fair trade goods from all around the world. Each artisan box is a curated themed collection of handmade items for the home. These can include everything from Moroccan ceramics to handwoven Mexican baskets to tea, coffee, and other food items. Globin is the most customizable subscription box. It's also a verified member of the Fair Trade Federation, which means they pay artisans a reliable wage, which covers all of their basic needs. So to get $20 off your first box on any three-plus-month subscription, head to Globin.com and enter the code TCFC at checkout. Once again, to get $20 off your first box off any three-month subscription, head to Globin.com and enter the code TCFC at checkout. Just a reminder, I am going to be on the Get Vocal app every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central to talk all things true crime. It's a great way for you to interact with me and other listeners of the show. Head to GetVocal, that's G-E-T-V-O-K-L dot com, or download the app on the App Store. And I'll see you there this Thursday. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Very few rapists seemed to be in touch with their sexual deviance and proclivities. Fewer still asked to remain behind bars to protect the public. But one mild-mannered, unassuring rapist-slash-killer did just that, but was released on parole anyway. The results were devastating for many. Okay, on to the show. Robert Carr was born in 1943 in Richmond, Virginia. His father was fighting in World War II and was not present for his birth. His mother worked in the motor vehicle department, and during the day, he stayed with his paternal grandmother. He claimed when he was a year old, there was an argument between his mother and grandmother, so his mother took him to live with her parents in the woods. There was no running water or electricity. She left him there during the week while she worked and saw him on the weekends. Robert would run after her when she left, crying and begging her to stay. His mother was later quoted as saying, I was in hard labor for three and a half days before Bobby was born. The first time I saw him, he was screaming and he never stopped. He cried, just screamed for two months straight. The doctors didn't know what it was. We tried everything. I nursed him for a week, and after that, we changed him from one formula to another, one milk to another, and another to stop his crying. I was alone taking care of him, and I was exhausted. I slept with one foot on his bassinet at the foot of my bed. It was on rollers, and I tried to rock it in my sleep to get some rest. I had to work, so later he went back and forth between his two grandmothers. But then I felt his father's parents were becoming too possessive, I took Bobby to my mother's where he could grow up out in the country. Robert grew up without his father in his life. He had gone AWOL while serving in the military, and his mother divorced him when the military could not find him. As a very small child, Robert would call any man in uniform Daddy. Streetcar conductors, bus drivers, literally any man in a uniform. At age nine, his father returned, but Robert felt it was just to see his mother. Robert heard from him again at age 14, and then many years later, when the two men were both in prisons, they communicated. Robert had ten half-siblings on his father's side. Some of Robert's earliest memories were of killing chickens on his grandparents' farm. One time, at the age of three, he took a stick and swung it around and around, batting at the chicks, killing several of them. Another time, he got into the medicine cabinet and put pills around on the ground for the chickens to eat. He also slipped some in their water, and numerous chickens died before his grandfather finally figured it out. His mother remarried a short time later and took Robert to live with her and her new husband, who was a prison guard. Robert hated his stepfather and his stepfather's mother, who also came to live with them. She was an invalid and one day convinced Robert to get into her bed. When he reluctantly did so, she took off her panties. Robert did not understand, but told his mother, and the two women had a terrible argument. Robert vowed to keep them from fighting in the future. Around five, Robert's mother and stepfather had a baby together. Robert said he was beaten frequently around this time, whether he did anything wrong or not. He was sent to stay with an aunt while his mother gave birth to his half-sister, and he did many things to get attention at his aunt's house. Robert acted out in school and, in the fourth grade, was expelled. At age 11, he was arrested for breaking into a store. He was taken to spend the night in a juvenile detention facility, where he saw homosexual activity for the first time. During another stay in the detention center, he had his first orgasm, having anal sex with someone younger and smaller than him. Robert continued to stay in trouble for many years, going to jail at age 15 for stealing a car. A psychiatrist who later examined Robert and his crime said that Robert learned early on that the only attention he was going to get was when he did something wrong, so that's why he acted out. He served 13 months at the age of 18 for theft. Soon after he got out, he began stealing cars and breaking into stores again. But then he met Joanne, who he would soon marry. She was 16 and he was 19 when they were married on May 24, 1963. During their first year as a married couple, Robert went to jail for slashing his stepfather with a knife. After he was released, they briefly moved to Connecticut, then back to Virginia, had a child, and then moved back to Connecticut to go on welfare when Robert couldn't work due to an accident. While in Connecticut, Robert met the other long-term woman in his life, Kathy, who he had an affair with. They would remain friends and sometimes lovers, off and on until Robert was arrested many years later in Florida. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Robert became bored with his life and his wife. He says in the book, Car, Five Years of Rape and Murder, written with Edna Buchanan, a crime reporter and novelist, he had always fantasized about raping someone. This desire increased when he started hearing reports on the radio about victims who had been picked up while hitchhiking, raped and killed, and then dumped on the road. Robert began planning his own rapes. In the fall of 1971, Robert's plans came to fruition while living in Miami, Florida. He picked up a brunette with short hair, her name was Helen, who was walking on Biscayne Boulevard. She was not hitchhiking, but in his opinion, she was looking for someone to pick her up. He struggled with whether to kidnap and rape her or not, so he told her he would take her wherever she needed to go. Just as they pulled up in front of her boyfriend's house, he made up his mind that he wanted to rape her. He pulled out a knife, told her to kneel on the floorboard, and put her head in the seat. He took her to his TV repair shop and then raped her. She was terrified of a violent rape, so he said he was gentle. He let her use the phone to call her boyfriend and then took her home. He tried to give her his registration, but she said it wasn't that bad and did not take them. The next day, he tried to find Helen to apologize and give her a clock radio and a brooch. He couldn't find her, but he saw a blonde on crutches and picked her up. When she told him her story, he just took her to her house and handed her the clock radio. Shortly after that, he asked Joanne, his wife, if they could move back to Connecticut. At this time, Robert rarely drank, but when they moved back to Connecticut, he discovered peppermint schnapps and started drinking a lot. He picked up a young woman named Anne, and later another one named Susan and raped them. He was able to convince the police Ann was lying about the rape and assault, in part because she had gonorrhea. However, when Susan reported him, he was charged for both rapes. He made bond and then left Connecticut for 30 days at a time. He raped another girl he picked up in Virginia and drove her up to Connecticut before he put her on a train back to Virginia. She did not report it to police but was terrified of him and would get physically ill if she saw anyone who resembled him. In November 1972, two 11-year-old boys went missing from an affluent Miami neighborhood. The two boys, Todd Payton and Mark Wilson, were from the Miami Beach area and were in the fourth grade. On the day of November 13, 1972, they were hitchhiking together to go to where Todd worked to pick up his paycheck. He worked in a cabinet shop where he swept up sawdust every day. Robert said he was sitting at a stoplight when a Dade County deputy pulled up beside him, but then pulled ahead of him. The two young boys came over to Robert and asked about a ride to Dixie Highway. He agreed and the two boys climbed in, Todd in the back and Mark in the front. He described Mark as like a little girl, just perfect in every way. He said he had small, delicate features, brown hair and eyes. Todd was blue-eyed, brown-haired, and had freckles. Mark told Robert he was 14, which Robert didn't believe. He told the two boys he would pay them to help him load a boat on a trailer, then took them in the woods, where he showed Mark his knife. He tied the two boys' ankles together so they couldn't run. For the next nine days, he took the two boys on a road trip, trying to gain their confidence so they wouldn't run or rat him out. According to Robert Carr's own recounting of the kidnapping, They had numerous encounters with law enforcement because of traffic stops, and neither boy ever asked or screamed for help. They were often driving during this time, going from Miami to Mississippi to Georgia, then New Orleans, and then back to Mississippi. Despite all of this driving, Robert Carr very competently, psychologically, and physically tortured these two boys. He eventually set them against each other by favoring Mark, giving him small gifts and being stricter with Todd. He raped both boys numerous times until their murders. According to police, the first boy, Todd, was killed on November 27, 1972. On that day, Robert and Todd began arguing about Todd's constant attempts to slip away. Todd threw a cigarette lighter at the dash, which bounced up and hit Robert in the lip. Enraged, Robert began strangling Todd. Mark intervened and saved Todd's life at the time. However, later that same day, Robert explained that Todd had to go. Mark was afraid he would be next, but Robert assured him that he was not going to hurt him. A short while later, Robert started strangling Todd in the car. Then he opened the door and pulled Todd out by his legs. When he hit the ground, Todd began breathing again. Robert put his hands around Todd's neck again and strangled him until he could no longer hear a heartbeat. He threw Todd into a canal and watched him float back up. He threw some logs on top of Todd and he and Mark left the area. Later, Robert realized Todd would be found, so he and Mark went back to the area. Robert pulled Todd out of the canal and then dug a grave for him. When he got back to the car, Mark was quiet and frightened. Mark told Robert he was afraid he was about to kill him, too. Robert assured him that he wasn't going to kill him and he was going to get him home. However, despite all his assurances, Robert ended up killing Mark, too. He buried them in different locations. Mark was buried in Hancock County, Mississippi, and Todd was buried in Louisiana. Throughout this, police thought the boys were just runaways because there were several alleged sightings of both boys. One of Mark's classmates reported he had played football with Mark a week after they went missing. A girl who knew Todd said she saw him several weeks after they disappeared. Another of Todd's friends said he saw Todd near a bowling alley on December 2nd and gave chase until he was stopped by some older boys who told him to mind his own business. An older woman, a friend of the family, said she saw Mark in front of a store in North Miami Beach on November 22, 1972. After he buried the boys, Robert went to New Orleans, sold his car, and then called his wife in Connecticut. Joanne told him the police were looking for him and now he was considered a fugitive. Regardless, Robert purchased a bus ticket home. When he returned home to Connecticut, he was arrested and held in jail until his trial in February 1973 for the two rapes in Connecticut. He was found guilty of a lesser sexual charge and given four to eight years in prison. After two years and eight months, Robert Carr was released on parole. According to Robert, he asked to stay in prison and receive psychological assistance so he wouldn't hurt anyone else. However, according to John Manson, then Connecticut Commissioner of Corrections, Robert did receive six months of psychiatric assistance while serving his sentence. He said this revolved mostly around Robert's alcoholism. John Manson did not recall Robert asking to stay in prison. This was supported by J. Bernard Gates, the chairman of the State Parole Board who declared Robert Carr asked for parole, citing his psychiatric treatment as an indicator that he was helping himself. His wife also requested that Robert be granted parole. And so, Robert was paroled in October 1975. After Robert was released from prison, he could not suppress his urges. In the first week of 1976, he picked up a young black woman He knew her as Candy, although her real name was Rhonda Holloway and she was a sex worker. The night he picked her up, he drove past her and she gave him a sign to come back. He pulled up beside her and she got into the car. She talked him into coming up to her place, so she got in the car and gave him directions. Robert did not turn where she told him to and pulled his knife on her. The two struggled over the knife and Robert convinced her he was not going to stab her. She tried desperately to get out of the car, but he had rigged the car door so it could not be opened from the inside. Robert did this to all of his cars. He then took Rhonda to Devil's Hopyard State Park, where they stayed that night and the next day. He told her late in the day that he would take her home, but forced her to get into the trunk of his car, then took her to Canterbury's Lover's Lane. Once there, he bound Rhonda's hands and strangled her. He left her body in his trunk and drove back to his home in Norwich, where he slept for the night. When he woke the next day, he borrowed a shovel, drove Rhonda back to Lover's Lane, and buried her. Robert later told police he could not pinpoint the day of her murder because he had stayed drunk most of the month of March. A missing persons report filed by Rhonda's roommate put her official disappearance on March 20, 1972. Her roommate said Rhonda had left to go get cigarettes one evening. And never returned. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver?
1: Not long after, he left Connecticut and returned to Miami in late March 1976. He was cruising Miami trying to find his next victim when he saw her, Tammy Ruth Huntley. She was wearing faded jeans and a white blouse with blue flowers on it. She had long brown hair and was loaded with personality. Robert said she was giggly when she got in the car, telling him she had just smoked a joint. Tammy had told her mother, Don't forget to pick me up at 9 o'clock, but when her mother got there, she was gone. Robert Carr used his normal tactics once he had Tammy in the car. The door lock was disabled, and when it was time to drop her off, he took out his knife and showed it to her. She was terrified, and after a few minutes of begging, complied when he told her to kneel on the floorboard and put her head on the front seat. He was going to drive her to a spot out on Tamiami Trail, but she was so quiet that he kept going. Robert finally let Tammy up once they got to the Everglades, and she asked if he was going to rape her. He told her no. She kept asking him where he was taking her and why he had taken her, and he finally told her she was just one of many who had been kidnapped ahead of Patty Hearst's sentencing. A note to listeners, if you are not aware, Patty Hearst was the granddaughter of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst and was kidnapped on February 4, 1974 by a terrorist group called the Symbionese Liberation Army. They held her for several weeks in a closet, blindfolded, and only let her out to eat. According to Patty Hearst, they eventually told her she could join the SLA or die. Patty joined the group and was later arrested for her part in several crimes, including bank robberies. Just like he had done with the two 11-year-olds Mark and Todd, Robert psychologically and physically tormented Tammy. One moment, she would think everything was okay. The next, he was yelling at her, hitting her, or raping her. He bought her presents, then would scream at her that he was going to kill her. At one point, he had terrorized her so badly that she cried for hours, unable to stop. Robert kept Tammy with him for ten days when he took her to New Orleans, ready to put her on a plane home. He had even taken her on a shopping spree beforehand and let her buy several new outfits. However, something changed his mind while he was in New Orleans, when he found out the next available flight was not until 3.30 in the morning. He took Tammy to the same woods where he had killed and buried Mark, and bound her, then strangled her. He buried her not far from Mark and then carefully packed down the dirt so no one could tell it had been disturbed. He then experienced grief and regret and later claimed he missed Tammy. Just like with the boys, there were several people who saw Robert with Tammy, including law enforcement officers. Additionally, one time, Robert got the car stuck and had to walk to the highway to flag down someone in a pickup truck to pull him out. They flagged someone down, and when he came down to the dirt road and got out of the car, Tammy did not say a word to the local. Tammy's parents later said she had struggled with some issues, which led her to juvenile court. She was enrolled in counseling sessions and had been doing so much better. The night she disappeared, she was attending a rap session, known today as group counseling. Her mother said Tammy was enjoying these rap sessions and was helping kids her own age. Tammy had gotten a job and was really changing her life. Her mother was convinced that she did not get into the car with Robert Carr of her own accord. After Tammy, Robert picked up and raped six others, four females and two teenage boys. The two boys reminded him of Mark and Todd, and he built a rapport with them. He did rape them, and even after he raped them, he kept in touch with the boys, according to Robert Carr in his book. He tried to keep the two boys, Michael and Jeff, out of the investigation. On May 31, 1976, on Memorial Day, Robert Carr was out cruising. He later claimed he was not looking for a rape victim, but he saw a young woman standing in the middle of the road trying to stop someone. She was blonde, a midriff top, and white Daisy Dukes. Robert slammed on his brakes when he got to her, almost causing a pile-up on the interstate. Her name was Jenny, and she was very intoxicated. She needed to go to Fort Lauderdale and thought Robert was a cab driver. He took her to Tamiami Trail and tried to force her to perform oral sex on him. She bit his penis and tried to dive out of the car, but he caught her by her pants and ended up tumbling to the ground with him. She started screaming and he started trying to shut her up, finally strangling her until she went limp, losing consciousness. He threw her back in the car and sodomized her. Later, as he was raping her again, a police officer pulled up behind his car and flipped on the siren. When Jenny realized it was a cop, she started screaming that she was being raped. Robert tried to play it off by saying she was married and needed a story to tell her husband. His good nature act did not work this time. Jenny had sobered up. The first officer on the scene just had a hunch something wasn't right with Robert Carr. And so other officers were called to respond. Robert was arrested and taken to Dade County Jail, where he was questioned by homicide detectives Charles Zatropalik and David Simmons. They were convinced that he was involved in the murder of a young sex worker who had been found just a mile and a half away from where Robert had taken Jenny. Angela Chapman, a 25 year old intellectually and developmentally disabled sex worker, had come to Miami from Indiana just five months before. She had been found just two weeks before Robert was arrested for raping Jenny. Robert denied any involvement with Angela and also any involvement with several other rapes investigators brought up. However, his conscience got the best of him, and he started talking about the rapes he had recently committed. Initially, he did not mention Tammy, Mark, or Todd, but after he had been put in his cell, his conscience weighed on him again and for Tammy, he realized he had to confess. He wrote T.R. Huntley on a piece of paper and gave it to the jailer, saying he needed to talk to the detectives again. They did not want to talk to him and said they would see him at his arraignment. He was antsy and couldn't let his self-preservation outweigh his conscience, so while in court, he made something of a scene, saying loudly to a guard, I want to talk to you, mister... He was told to be quiet initially, then Robert just got louder, so the guard sat down behind him and asked him what he wanted. Robert pointed at David Simmons and said he needed to talk to him. The detective asked if it was important, to which Robert replied, is murder important? David took him out of the courtroom and walked Robert to a holding cell. The two other detectives showed up later in the day and walked Robert to the sheriff's department across the street. Once there, Robert wrote down the names of his four murder victims, including their last names, except Todd's, because he forgot it. After hours of speaking, Robert promised to take them to the bodies, which were in Mississippi and Louisiana. The detectives arranged it, and in a few short days, detectives brought Robert new clothes, and they got a flight to New Orleans. Once there, the detectives rented a car, and Robert convinced them to go visit the area where Tammy was buried. He showed him where her personal belongings were and then they went back to New Orleans where they checked Robert into the parish jail for the night. The next morning, the two detectives picked him up and a small convoy went to Mississippi to exhume Tammy from her grave. Several local law enforcement officials were in attendance, including Hancock County Sheriff Sylvan J. Ladner Jr. Another official there was Dr. Ronald K. Wright, chief deputy medical examiner for Dade County, Florida. Dr. Wright later commended Robert for his memory because he led them right to Tammy's grave and personal belongings. Robert had a little more difficulty finding marks because it had been four years and vegetation had changed and grown. Dr. Wright also disputed Sheriff Ladner's claims that Tammy had been buried alive because she had struggled with her ropes. Dr. Wright said the rope marks on her back occurred pre-mortem and that she had definitely been dead when placed in the grave. After they uncovered the two young victims in Mississippi, Robert led them to Todd's grave in Louisiana, and then the next week, the detectives took Robert to Connecticut to show where he had buried Rhonda. Through all this, Robert had contacted an attorney, but he did not listen to his attorney's advice and continued talking to the detectives Part of his reward for talking was unfettered phone contact with his wife in Connecticut. Robert was also vocal during this time period, saying that the blame for the four murders should fall solely on the Connecticut state prison system's shoulders. Robert said that he had tried to seek help while in the Connecticut prison, but they released him anyway. With all four bodies located, Robert Carr was mentally absolved of some of his guilt but reportedly told reporters that he couldn't say he would not kill in the future. He had also allegedly said something similar to officials in Connecticut in 1972. He told them if he were paroled without getting psychiatric help, that he would, quote, go out and kill someone. Officers who worked these investigations were shocked by the level of control Robert had over his victims. In the three Florida murders, there had been many opportunities for his victims to run, but they did not. Robert Carr was indicted by a grand jury on June 23, 1976. The indictment stated the murder of Todd Payton occurred between November 19 and November 22, 1972. Mark Wilson's murder was listed as occurring between November twenty second and 28, 1972. The Florida grand jury indictment did not include Rhonda Holloway's murder, and Robert Carr could not be charged with this murder due to the three outstanding murder charges in Florida. Robert pleaded guilty to the rape and murder of the three Miami youth. He also pleaded guilty to the rape of Jenny. Later, in September 1976, he tried to change his plea to not guilty for the murders, but the judge would not allow him to withdraw his plea. Robert claimed that detectives had misled him regarding his charges and the death penalty. The judge ruled that Robert knew what the penalty for first-degree murder was. Robert Carr had a speedy trial. He had been arrested on May 31, 1976, and his trial commenced in September 1976. He had requested a jury trial, and this was granted in August. Robert Carr testified in his trial and admitted to jurors that he had raped six people after he murdered Tammy. On September 17, 1976, Judge Natalie Baskin, no relation to Carol Baskin, sentenced Robert Carr to three life terms plus 360 years. Robert Carr spoke to reporters in the chapel of the county jail following his sentencing. His first words were to the families. I'm sorry that my insanity killed their children. He said he was grateful for the sentence he had been given, although he had requested the death penalty. He told Judge Baskin, Your Honor, this is my final request for treatment. However, Judge Baskin said at sentencing that imposition of the death penalty would relieve society of dealing with Carr, but this country has fought wars to prevent extermination of the weak. She continued by saying that the death penalty does not serve as a deterrent for those that suffer from mental illness. Carr also sent a letter to his living victims in Connecticut in August 1976, urging them not to let the public forget about his crimes. Robert Carr's conviction and sentencing was of little comfort to the families of his victims. Those young lives were tossed away, and the families had worried and wondered for months and even years before they received any news. Adding to that was the callous response of the police, who insisted Mark and Todd were merely runaways, and who had once told Tammy Huntley's mother they would have notified her if an unidentified body had been Tammy's. Tammy's mother felt like she was bothering the police and they did not want to hear from her. She and Todd's mother teamed up to ensure Robert Carr never walked the streets hunting for prey again. A few months into his sentencing, Robert Carr was sent to a psychiatric hospital for the treatment he had requested for so long. He was there for about a year, during which time he did not respond well to the treatment. While at the hospital, he was found with tools in his possession and a small stockpile of food. He was sent back to the prison shortly thereafter. Robert wanted to team up with Edna Buchanan, who had written many of the articles about his crimes and arrest. He explained he wanted to write a book about his crimes to help law enforcement find predators such as him. Robert was given a great deal of freedom to speak with Edna, who was eventually recognized as a regular around the prison. The two ended up with hundreds of interview tapes. The book has apparently been used as a training tool for law enforcement in the past. A letter to the editor of the Miami Herald on December 30, 1977, exemplifies the feelings about Robert Carr that many residents of Florida had. Lorraine Kellogg wrote, the present hesitation by the court on this case of Robert Carr, mass rapist and murderer, is offensive to the system of law and justice. Just because Carr displays intelligence in manipulating his criminal tendencies in his own defense is no reason for the court to now deliberate where this person belongs. Carr has appeared to have been granted carte blanche mail and postage privileges and phone calls, and has gained access to escape tools such as wire cutters. If this man did not have intention to escape, why would he have such tools in his possession? Why does this court appear to have forgotten that Carr raped and murdered innocent children, beautiful little children whose lives he snuffed out in the most vile and horrible ways? God helped the judicial system and society if Carr is allowed to gain access to placement, where he can become free to take more innocent lives. As the mother of two children, the thought of this man being free sends shivers through my spine. I pray Judge Baskin considers her responsibility to unsuspecting young people who could fall prey to this murderer if he is not locked away in a maximum prison. For people who were worried that Robert Carr would be paroled and allowed to walk free again, The Parole Commission alleviated those fears in 2000. The three-member commission added 1,400 years under Robert Carr's sentence. For each instance of fixing a door handle so his victims could not open the door, he was given 15 years. For each rape, he was given 50 years. For each murder, he was given 100 years. He was also given 20 years for the terror inflicted on Mark after witnessing Todd's murder. One of his victims, Sari, who had been 15 when he raped her, Testified at the hearing. She testified that Robert picked her up after a concert and then held her for 36 hours. She was assaulted at knife point numerous times over those 36 hours. Robert Carr, the man who had once admitted to fantasizing about raping and killing his victims while having sex with his wife, died in a North Florida prison hospital on July 6, 2007. His body was unclaimed by his children or other relatives and, he was buried in the prison graveyard. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFC Podcast, Instagram at true crime fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at we Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. And I'm your host,
0: Lainey. Pregnancy is an exciting time, full of hope and wonder, and even trepidation. The addition of a child changes a person's life forever. And for victims of fetal abduction in the United States, their lives were brutally changed in a way they could never have imagined. In this series, we will explore cases of fetal abduction in America, from the highly publicized cases to the little known and every case in between. Join me, your host, Erica Kelly, for Fetal Abduction, a true crime podcast. It's a new podcast where we take a closer look at this rare yet heinous crime. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Fetal Abduction Pod, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.